Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, a welcome tax break for live action shows on kids' TV. Vodafone are looking to splash the cash, but can it keep BT at bay? Plus, The Times turns a profit for the first year since 2001. And as The Guardian prepares its annual top 100, we speculate on some of the likely new entries. This is the Media Podcast, sponsored by Audioboo. And joining me in the hubbub of the Hospital Club this week are two creative directors. Honestly, you wait for one to come along, two at once. We've got Faraz Osman, creative director of the TV indie Lemonade Money, and Matt Deegan, who is creative director at Folder Media. Welcome back, both of you. Uh, could, could you please agree for me on what a creative director's role actually is? I couldn't come up with a better name. Uh, it's, it sounds more glamorous than managing director. Let's talk about some proper media stories then. Uh, on Wednesday, the UK Chancellor, George Osborne that is, for uh, those who don't follow politics, uh, presented his autumn statement. Uh, in that, he announced that live-action productions for children will go the same way as animation and high-end drama. Uh, it is hoped that the large tax breaks are going to lead to a renaissance in family programmes. Uh, now, Matt, as creative director of Fun Kids Radio, amongst other things... Mm. Um, you know a lot about what kids are actually consuming these days. Do you think this is going to make a difference? Will this work to help the children's sector? Does this mean Zoella can claim a tax break if her audience is predominantly 13 to 18-year-olds? I think she needs a tax break, doesn't yeah, she? Yeah, she's doing she's not so doing badly. Well at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's probably really good. It's good news. Uh, anything that encourages uh, more production to happen in the UK uh, in any of the creative sectors is a good thing. Uh, I think there's a question about where that's going to go. Is it going to pretty much strengthen the BBC's children's output is there a lot of live action on things like uh, Turner's networks or on Nickelodeon's networks a little bit uh, there's a little bit more on Disney uh, Disney are trying to make more UK programs that they can export to the other Disney's around the world so if it moves production from what used to be in Canada or California to, to, to the UK that's probably um, a good thing probably not a, a, a panacea I think one of the, the big issues that facing a lot of kids channels is obviously the change in rules about uh, advertising certain products and that's affected how some of those channels develop and some of the bigger entities like Viacom 
how much effort they want to put into those channels versus things like MTV. Uh, Faraz, obviously you work in an indie where you have people coming from different production sectors. How important is the kids' TV sector in actually growing talent, do you think, behind the scenes? Well, actually, James and I, my business partner, we actually met at Children's BBC and, and we cut our teeth and got our experience in that space. So I think that we have particular affinity with that space and we've talked a lot about what our format for younger audiences may well be obviously any any tax break any help for the creative industries is always welcomed by the industry as it should but what i'm interested in is knowing where where this begins and end um the word live action does does that mean that we're going to see a comeback of all those brilliant saturday morning shows that everyone got up early to run down and and watch um uh, I'm not sure it does does include that. It sounds like it's more about the drama space. And, and I think that when you look at what's happened around particularly the presenting space where a lot of people have come through uh, kids' TV and, and now T4's disappeared and we don't see any of those, those big two-hour, th- three-hour-long kids' live-action, well, live entertainment shows that yeah. we used to. What sort of magazine it, shows, effectively. Exactly. Which It'd be nice. train up a lot of people who go on to work on Good Morning Britain. Or yeah, and yeah. I personally think that those things have a real positive impact on the industry as, as a long tail. And it'd be nice to see if, if this, this tax break also includes that as well, because I'd, I'd love to see a return to, to that world, not least because it allows for some new fresh faces to come through. But then Matt Faraz is talking about a world there that doesn't really exist anymore because of channels like CBBC and CBBS. Yeah. Cheryl Taylor, who controls BBC One, she said she wants more kids' programmes on BBC one or would like that as an idea but is that relevant to children now who are just used to finding the channel where all their stuff is I think older people worry more about channels than younger people do uh, and they'll seek out the right content I think where there is a big BBC gap they do a lot right around children's they do a poor job promoting it on the main channels you know talking up certain shows after things like EastEnders and Doctor Who which lots of children watch and promote the fact that they're on the CBBC channel from the last bit of research I saw if you're in a free view home the BBC's children's channels do really well. If you're in a satellite home, then it's led by um, Disney, the Disney channels. And that, yeah, that's a lot about brand cross-promotion. And I think if the BBC want to support children's, not just with money, which they, they put a decent amount of cash in, they've got to make it part of those uh, BBC services. And, you know, I, you know, we run a radio station for children, predominantly age 7 to 12. We have some of our presenters who've gone on to do kids' TV. And we also have some of the CBBC presenters who want to come on to Fun Kids. And we've had some of them uh, do, some, do some stuff around that. So uh, it's definitely a really active sector. I think it's up to the, the TV channels to put their money where their mouth is if they really believe in, in kids TV to, to, to promote it better actually because kids are going to look at um, stuff on YouTube and that's Minecraft videos and walkthroughs and YouTubers and all of that stuff but for us I mean you started on Blue Peter uh, it might just be that we're being nostalgic and old about this but it would be nice to see Blue Peter back on BBC One wouldn't it it does seem a shame doesn't it that it's siphoned off onto its own channel well and like you say it's, it is easy to be nostalgic about your kids television but that, that to me demonstrates the power of kids TV you, you grow up with these brands and I think it's important that we continue to, to support them whether they are legacy brands or whether they're new brands I think it's important to, to demonstrate that if we can hook people in particularly for, for, for the BBC because they need to get people loving that brand early on because it's it's a service that that you pay for at a later date and and part of the success of of a brand like the BBC is is the fact that the audiences love it so I think that anything that can help get younger audiences engaged with with media and particular television early on is a good thing I think that there is a, a genuine challenge around American voices American accents American sensibilities and young people in the UK being attracted to that and we need to make sure that that balance is right but I do think that there is a gap between 
where things end with CBBS, which is classically seen as a very British thing, and then when when kids grow up a little bit, they start moving towards a more diverse diet of media. It would be nice to make sure that some of that continues to be British, and and hopefully this will help. And of course, American owners as well as American accents, Liberty Global are in the news this week because Vodafone are making moves on them. And Liberty Global are the cable company that own Virgin Media in the UK, but many operations across Europe as well. And that's not the only speculation linked to Vodafone this week. Broadcast reporting that the phone company are eyeing up Blinkbox, uh, that's Tesco's VOD service, and possibly also Premier League rights as well. Uh, I do wonder that this may just have something to do with BT's potential deal to buy back the O2 mobile business. Uh, Matt, there's a lot of consolidation going on here, isn't there? Or attempted consolidation. Is that simplistic questions, but a good or bad thing for the industry as a whole? Big companies want to own all the pipes to consumers, be that uh, TV, uh, cable TV, uh, internet, uh, and mobile. Uh, And so bringing those things together makes a lot of sense. When you look at (laughs) Sky's diversified business, uh, all the things that they've acquired over over the past few years from uh, broadband networks, obviously really strong in TV, and for BT coming into the market with BT Sport, that's pretend, that was originally all about keeping BT broadband subscribers. Uh, so suddenly to stay ahead, they need to think, oh, we need to offer quad play to our users. We need a mobile phone network. Oh, if only we hadn't sold O2 off in the beginning. So they'll probably end up uh, buying that back uh, to, fight against, to fight against other operators. And then you've got a Vodafone who are thinking, well, hang on a sec. Uh, we're very strong in, in the, the mobile networks, but if... BT with BT Vision or, and UView and Broadband uh, and their own mobile phone network. Well, that's a threat to us as a mobile phone network to compete. We've got to own everything else as well. It's interesting. Even the things that Vodafone are trying to bundle in with just their mobile phone package, mm. free subscription to Spotify yep. and sport channels and stuff, seem to hint at the idea that people do want, what do you call it, a quad play. Yes. So that's phone, TV, broadband and mobile. mobile. Uh, for us, do you think people do want a quad play? I'm kind of quite attached to the fact that I have a different provider for my mobile phone so that when it ballses up, it's not one company that deals with everything. Yeah, I think that there's a. it's always good to have some healthy competition in, in different spaces. I think that what concerns me about this in particular, and it's very, very boring and very, very dry, but it's a debate that does need to be had in the UK, is around net neutrality. And once we start looking at this, um, are, are we going to see a situation where if Vodafone owns certain rights to certain IP, or certain channels you get a, a better service if you're on one network than if you do on another and I, I don't necessarily think that's a good thing for broadcasting and I think we need to be very careful that this isn't just a debate that's had around pricing and around where you're going to save some money but it's also a debate that's had about your access to content and making sure that um, everyone has access to all services in the best possible way. And if all of the roads point back to a few select corporations, uh, and in your world, obviously, you could take, for an example, Sky investing in a lot of indies, which then merge and become super indies. As someone who's running an indie, uh, do you feel like it's a level playing field? I mean, in a way, does it actually boost what you're doing because you're genuinely not owned by a massive corporate, or does it feel like it's unequal now? To be honest, I think no one really knows. That's why it's exciting to be running a production company at the moment, because you don't know who you're going to be making stuff for next year and in five years' time and in ten years' time. And we are trying to build a company that's as agile as possible to make sure that we can meet the different criteria around the length of formats, the type of formats, where they're going to be seen, who 
they're going to be seen by, what devices they're going to be seen on. Those are all really interesting questions that continue to to pop up. But I think that anything that stops that innovation and anything that that stifles that progress is is not necessarily a good thing. And I'm not suggesting that that Vodafone are are looking to do that by consolidating and strengthening their position in the market. But I do think that we need to educate audiences in the UK about what this may mean for how they're going to access their content and and the negative points across that more more so than just the price points and and the um, financial competition around it especially if you're forced to watch Blinkbox <laughs> yeah it's amazing they're still around as a brand isn't it why didn't Tesco rebrand Blinkbox when they had it Game of Thrones box yeah I think it's, it's difficult isn't it it's how do you compete against really strong uh, aggregators and the Netflixes of the world who are themselves investing what two three billion dollars this year in their own content it's very difficult for Blinkbox to to compete but then you see I think there's going to be a big success uh, next year with uh, what Sky are doing with um, with Now TV um, not only bundling up kind of channels for soft subscribers who, who don't really want to go for satellite but some of the things they're offering on box sets does start to blow even Netflix out, out of the water so of course if I am a Netflix I've got to make my own stuff because if I can't get hold of it because Sky have snaffled um, global deals for it mm. I'm going to need to change my business yeah it's interesting actually weirdly ironically whilst we've been sitting here discussing this I've had a text message from my mobile phone provider which is Orange uh, telling me that I get a free download today with Wuwaki uh, which I thought was some sort of niche pornography it's actually a Blinkbox rival where you pay £3.49 to watch The Inbetweeners too, and they're doing that they've just texted it to me I mean everyone's going after these kind of bundled deals but as you say it's really because of Now TV and Netflix mm. and there aren't, even Amazon can't really compete yet well, Amazon's an, an interesting business that have developed their own mobile phones uh, their own tablets more successful Kindle and Kindle Fire than with their than their Fire phones, but are trying to build their own ecosystem outside of being a, a telecoms operator, but by being a truly uh, over the top operator by making their their video stuff available. And also an announcement today from Amazon, or announcement recently from Amazon, the Audible, uh, the the e- traditionally known as the audiobook people, are starting to commission their own their own radio programs. Okay, if you'd like a little bit of break from the media jargon, uh, we've said uh, uh, verticals, uh, we've said OTT. I push net neutrality. That's net neutrality was good as well. Jargon, uh, let's, let's have a little palate cleanser. We'll be back after this. Squarespace. Not only is it a proud sponsor of the media podcast, but it's also a business looking for your custom. They give you the tools to make your own website from your own browser. Just head to squarespace.com and you can get a free trial to see how it works. And if you really like it, you can get 10% off a monthly or annual plan by using the code MEDIAPOD at the checkout. Squarespace uses drag and drop tools that make it easy to add video, audio and pictures to your design. They also have their own e-commerce kit so you can sell things through your website and they have 24-hour support based in the US and UK. Begin building your website with Squarespace today and don't forget you'll receive 10% off when you use the offer code MEDIAPOD. (laughs) 
Some news in brief now, and here's something I never thought I'd be saying. Good news for the Times, uh, as the paper and its sister title, the Sunday Times, have made a profit. A small profit, but that's the first year that that's happened since 2001, uh, and that's according to the Press Gazette. Uh, Faraz, why do you think this is? Do you think essentially this is digital subscriptions, or do you think this is because they've had quite a good year with some strong stories, or is it because they've done their office reorganisation, or is it a bit of clever accounting? What is it? I think it's all of the above, really. I think that there's... Uh, I'd like to see what the figures are next year, once all of those things are settled down around their accounting and their new offices. Um, but I think it's fair to say that they have had a successful year. I mean, what was I, I personally feel that what we've now seen as of this announcement is the end of people identifying with one newspaper like like we had when we grew up. I don't think you've got a situation where somebody's a Guardian person or someone's a Daily Mail person or someone's a Times person. What this is is about people having a good, varied, mixed-media diet where they'll pick some articles up from the Times, some articles up from the Guardian. Anybody who says that they don't have a look at the Daily Mail website once every couple of weeks is, is lying to you. Um, people are going to lots of different sources to get their news, and uh, the Times have got a good strategy, the Guardian have got a good strategy, and I think it's good that we're seeing some differences along the way because that's what consumers want. Have the Times got a good strategy, though, Matt? Because it is still based around putting it all behind a paywall. And what Farrah says is true to an extent, but if it's behind a paywall, you can't dip into it like you can the Guardian and the Mail. Yeah, I think it is the right strategy. Uh, 150,000 digital subscribers now, um, paying about £3 a week, I think. I can't remember. Uh, but uh, what the big change is, it's not a mass market product anymore. You know, it's a relatively niche product of a few hundred thousand people who consume it uh, either in print form for the dailies um, or, or in digital form. Uh, and they're going to monetize that audience. Uh, I buy a copy of the Sunday Times actually on a Sunday because I can't get it online and it suits me if I'm going to a cafe and I quite like uh, what, what they cover. If it was available for free, I wouldn't buy a copy of the, of the Sunday Times. Uh, so, so putting a paywall around their material seems to have been a success, though it stops them being a global paper of record, something everybody can access in a, in a modern world. Does it possibly end the argument about whether Murdoch is wrong that you can't get people to pay for content at all? I think different types of people pay for different types of content. Yeah. Uh, I think it is probably still going to be harder to entice people into subscribing to the digital edition of The Sun uh, than it is the digital edition of The Times. It is high-quality journalism. I think, if anything, The Times over the past few years has become slightly less partisan as well. You know, It's actually a broader... You know, As a digital product, it's not as divisive as something like the mail is or the mail print edition is again their online operation is very much more metro-esque middle of the road um, and similarly success of the FT success of the economist you know it's providing detail a lot can happen in the next three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more 
and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. ...journalism that, that isn't trying to tell entirely tell uh, its readers uh, what to think and maybe there's some success in that as well Francis do you want to jump in yeah I was, I was I mean I think it's about experiences so the experience of going down to the news agents and buying a copy of the Sunday papers and getting home with a cup of coffee the Times do that very very well they also do the experience of looking at new long form news content on an iPad or a, a kind of big tablet device probably the best in class whereas when it comes to kind of browsing on your web browser at your computer when you're at work the Guardian are doing that very very well and I think that this mix of experiences it's it's not simply just access to the content it's how you experience that content as well and I think that once we get a different way to plug into different parts of news along the way then, then that's that's what's working Twitter have got its own has its own experience when it comes to digesting news and it's all very very different and they all have their own place and I think that's what consumers want. Uh, the information I haven't seen is how old the people who are subscribing to the yes. digital packs actually are. Uh, versus, especially versus the print titles as well. Yeah, yeah. Because, um, I mean, instinctively you'd assume younger, right? But you'd mm. assume not young, young, because then they'll be reading BuzzFeed. Mm. And I guess in time that'll be a problem, even if the Times manages to grow that middle-aged audience getting the digital pack. Um, talking about traditional prints, uh, the Sunday Telegraph's theatre critic, Tim Walker, uh, he's been let go. Uh, from his job there and written an opinion piece for The Guardian bemoaning his previous employers and other national papers who are laying off their theatre reviewers like him. He said, My decade doing the job coincided with a bloodbath among my fraternity that has been every bit as savage and indiscriminate as the one that was perpetrated by Vincent Price in that splendid 70s shocker, Theatre of Blood. Uh, so a contemporary reference there from the theatre critic of the do, Sunday Telegraph. Do you Telegram. think that reveals potentially why he's no longer employed? Um, is there a place in the world for professional critics is what this comes down to. For us, is there a place or not? Uh, I hope so. I think that actually audiences are hung- hungrier than ever to have somebody to curate opinion for them. And, and there's so much information out there right now that it can't just all come from TripAdvisor and Rotten Tomatoes. Actually, people want experts who have a regular view of what is out there. Not everybody can go to the theatre every weekend. So when they do, they want to make sure they're going to see something good. And having someone that has an expert eye on that is, is important. But I mean, there's. I heard a story, and, and forgive me, I don't know the exact paper, I don't know the exact journalist, but I did hear a story of, I think it was in the New York Times of a TV critic that had been moved from one desk to another desk and started reviewing Shonda Rhimes dramas and and didn't particularly do a very good job or understand what it is that she's trying to do but he they became very disgruntled as a result of the fact that they were reviewing a format that they didn't think was as important as as the one they were doing previously and I think that actually critics if you're going to have them and you're going to employ them they need to be absolute masters and experts in the space that they're in because audiences need to trust them that they're just not another opinion they can read online yeah and as you say theatre specifically because it's expensive and because it involves leaving your house is probably the area of the arts where you really do need people who go a lot to be able to make an informed judgement I mean I consider myself someone who likes going to the theatre and I go once a month Michael Billington goes every night so if you get rid of those people it is a problem isn't it to get that view that's really informed I don't know I think if you're if you're a publication 
honestly, you look at your audience, uh, what percentage go to the theatre, do they want to read about it in that, in that publication? And you know, if not enough do, it's probably quite an expensive person to have on staff. Is it a shame there's not more theatre reviewed? Yes. Is it the job of newspapers to continue an art form that, for whatever reason, their audiences don't support? I think where it's interesting is NT Live digitaltheatre.com are making some excellent, excellent captures uh, of some really contemporary theatre. Um, as you move actually to, uh, to an iTunes-style opportunities for theatre, putting those commentators into those aggregators uh, for fans where they can not only you know, buy tickets and, and go and experience something live, but also watch uh, filmic adaptations like DT do, uh, maybe that's where they should be. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it doesn't seem to be affecting bums on seats in the sense that those things are growing. You know, Lynn Gardner was complaining as well at Edinburgh this year that critics weren't being sent up, apart from her, from the Nationals, to cover the Edinburgh Fringe, and and the Fringe was doing pretty well Mm. as well. But Tim Walker made a good point, I think, in his piece for The Guardian, which is there is a symbiosis between the theatre audience and the broadsheet audience in the sense that it might not be that everyone who reads a broadsheet goes to the theatre but everyone who goes to the theatre cares about what the Guardian the Observer and the Telegraph say about it but that, that can't justify the fact that just because they would like to see their thing plugged supported and lauded in the in the Telegraph it's not the owners on the Telegraph to bother doing that you know everyone would like a, I'd quite like more mentions in national newspapers for my radio station and I would like there to be more radio reviewers to talk about it but you know they've made a decision that that's less important to get people to buy a digital copy of the Times uh, or buy a buy a print copy. Okay, well let's let's talk about the BBC now and viewers in the north of the country who are now better represented thanks to the BBC. Well, that's according to Peter Salmon anyway, who is the BBC's England director. He told journalists at a Broadcasting Press Guild breakfast this week that because of its Salford production base, there are now more shows being made in and about the north. Uh, Matt, does it feel that way to you? Do you think uh, that the North is being better represented? I don't care. I'm in London. I'm a South East biased guy. Uh, does it really bother me? I mean, Peaky Blind- would Peaky Blinders have existed uh, if Salford didn't exist? Yes. Probably. Yes. Uh, have there been a run of things that are connected to Salford? Maybe. Have there been a run of things that have been on anyway? Maybe. I had a quick look at the numbers. They seem marginally higher appreci- appreciation scores. If you are Peter Salmon and your job title is King of the North, I'm sure you'll be looking looking at different ways to king say of that. To north. Yeah, looking yeah. at different ways to say, you know what, it's a good job I'm king of the north because look at look at all this appreciation. Yes, licence fee payers all across the country should feel they get value uh, from the BBC that they pay for. Is it connected to this? I don't know. Faraz? Yeah, I'm, I, I'm a bit of a London Salford naysayer as well, unfortunately. Um, I, I think that BBC Salford was a bit of a money pit. What I would have liked to have seen, actually, is um, the BBC ring-fencing budgets for productions outside of London and then growing a production community of of small indies and and also bigger indies as well in a space outside of of the M25 rather than building or, in this case, leasing a, a big property up there and uh, and moving lots of staff at a great expense to the licence fee payer. I'm I'm sure that if you're going to have that much investment, of course, it'd be a bit of a worry that you don't have a huge... uh, Sorry, a a slight blip in an an audience index. I mean, if there wasn't, then I think that this would be an absolute scandal. Um, In fact, the fact that it's not been massive and it's... I mean, I've not seen this figures myself, but if it's not a huge increase, then then it's been, what, quite a a long time, about five years now that Salford's been operating. So I would hope that there was... That just continues to grow, because if it's not, then I would argue that serious questions need to be asked about 
why that move was made and, and what, what the principles of it were. I think for me the positive thing about Salford, and we'll see whether this happens, is yes, phase one is everybody from London, their job moves, so a chunk of them move with their job. I think the question is when they leave or, or, or move on, are they replaced by people locally? And I think the, the bigger change to the BBC will be to have more locals uh, working in those organisations and gradually affecting the kind of output that is more representative of the country. I think if they've managed it in the first five years, it's maybe more on the luck than judgment side. I think the, the Salford and what they're doing uh, in Glasgow and to a slightly lesser extent in Birmingham uh, should be seen as a long-term thing. Is it having a long-term effect? In like years into Five Live, there are different kinds of voices on that station now um, because they're local to them and, and that's, not a, that's not a bad thing. Yes, although how much of this audience appreciation blip is based on big things like Last Tango and Halifax being successful rather than, you know, the, the economics expert from the University yeah. of Manchester being on BBC Breakfast. Well, <laughs> so well, but that's actually kind of a seen. really... It is a really important point and obviously there's a, there, there is this whole principle of, well, if you're up north, it means that you can get experts from, from those local areas and, and that means that more, more voices with different accents from around the, around the UK can be heard. But, I, you know, the thing that really, really got my goat was, was that whole Birmingham situation. The fact that they, they moved everything up there and I, I cut my teeth in BBC Birmingham and, and that was, you know, it, I went up there recently to go visit the place and it's it's a ghost town and I spoke to Tommy about it and his plans for rejuvenating that place are, are, are great and I really hope that he's really successful but the fact that it even needs to be done when this whole this whole big plan to move everything out of London it, it was happening at the same time to me seems farcical um, there really needs to be a better understanding of how the BBC is doing things across the UK and not just in one little area of, of Manchester well, meanwhile, back down here in South, specifically in King's Cross, our friends at Media Guardian, remember them, yeah. uh, are beavering away at the moment, working uh, on their top 100 most influential people in broadcasting, digital media, press and publishing list. I think they'll probably call it something snappier than that when it's published. Uh, not in any way to overshadow their hard work, but uh, let's just see if we can bash it out in five seconds. Uh, Faraz, who do you think this has been a particularly good year for? Who would you put on the power players list in media at the moment? Oh, it's always a little bit of fun, isn't it? Um, I well, although that aside, what I'd quite like to see is how many. Uh, well, I would say this, but how many black and ethnic minority faces are going to appear on that list? I think that this has been one of the big stories of the year about um, uh, about a lot of people disappearing from from uh, television and, and the media industries that are from an ethnic background. And I think that this list will reflect that or it may uh, go against that. It'll be interesting to see who, who appears as that result. And also, obviously, last year's list was a lot about the, the growth of online and um, uh, and those those players kind of taking over. Are we going to continue to see that trend um, or are we going to see a, a new balance back to the traditional ITVs and BBCs along the way? I think it's going to be a really interesting list this year and I'm looking forward to it. That was a good fudge, but I want a name. Deegan, give me a name. Who's, um, who's going up? It's a boring one, but um, James Pennell, head of strategy and digital for the BBC, he has got a, a licence fee renewal uh, on, on his plate, so that's going to become a much more important role in the next few years, so I think, I think he's going to be up there. I think we're going to see people from uh, the super mega indies 
Um, so the new American-owned uh, one, Sophie, uh, previously at Sky, Sophie Turner Lang now running. Uh, what's the Shine conglomerate called? Shendemol. Yes, yeah. uh, run, running all of that, uh, and then I think we'll see the kind of Netflix bosses. Um, probably not the Blink Box boss, but uh, everyone else. I think that's got to be got to be high up. Okay. Well, the obviously, me- except, oh. sorry, obviously, except for ourselves. I'm expecting top twenty for for all four of us. I think. Uh, well, I'm. I mean, I think it's a given that Ollie Mann's in the top ten for the first yeah. time this year. But the media podcast generally as well, I think, will certainly be there. Anyway, uh, Jane, if you're listening, we will be keeping an eye on the Media Guardian Top 100. Uh, and it's out on Monday, the 8th of December. Finally, there is just time for the media quiz. Hooray! Correct. <laughs> Correct. Uh, slightly reluctant uh, enthusiasm there. Suddenly, my the, suddenly the hostel club has gone quiet as they wait in anticipation. <laughs> it's because they're waiting for win? the cream egg to be brought through on new, a silver platter. The new Saturday night entertainment format. Oh. <laughs> is, this, uh, is this just a pilot for your big new TV show? I have a feeling that producer Matt uses this slot every single episode as a pilot for various oh. different formats that have no place being on radio at all. Uh, this week we're calling it Remote Quote. Uh, I'm going to give you a quote from someone in this week's news you tell me what they're talking about. Buzz in with your name. Person with the most points wins the cream egg. Quote number one. This year's crop has reached the very top in politics, finance, the law and entertainment. The breadth of their experience and the diversity of their interests will provide a real treat for the listeners. For the listeners. For the listeners. Matt. Matt. Uh, is it a Radio 4 Today programme... Uh, yes. Editor yes. People. Yes, it is. Very good. You get an extra point if you know the name, but you don't, do you? No. Fair enough. Uh, Jamie Angus, the editor of Today on Radio 4, revealing uh, that the list of people guest editing the programme over Christmas this year uh, are Lenny Henry, Tracy Thorne, and the former governor of the Bank of England, Lord King. Uh, Mervyn to you it's a good way to uh, get out of having to put more freelancers on over the Christmas period isn't it <laughs> I was thinking actually is it, is it literally that he, that's his time off so he just kind of calls up his mates and yeah, says yeah, yeah. do you want a debt for me for a little bit yeah. some, some <laughs> poor AP has to look after Lenny Henry <laughs> and pretend that his views are of any interest to the Today audience who are all on holiday Mervyn I, what's your tea making like yeah. <laughs> I, I kind of think it's quite quite boring is that, yeah. is, am I allowed to say that of course I'm allowed you to say that of course you are we, we, our USP is that we're frank for us if nothing else I, what Literally a disappointing list Why? it kind of it feels just it feels a bit like 80s it feels well 90s with Tracy Thorne but it just mm. you know it would have been nice to see some young faces on there and some young talent on there and just, just people that are a bit more exciting I just kind of think that it, none of it is, is that particularly inspiring we are all about 20 years younger than the average listeners to today though aren't we but so, that's the point yes, I mean, well, wouldn't, yeah. it, wouldn't well, it be great if there was a big barnstorming name that, that nobody would have expected you know well Radio 4 are all about replenishers yeah. uh, people who uh, aren't about to die Yeah, or, or yeah. replace the ones who have died <laughs> yeah. um, where's Russell Brand's revolution based uh, oh. today programme morning uh, actually now you've said that I'm glad that we've got Tracy Thorne uh, ok right quote number two Matt is in the lead now so for as you must buzz in to have a chance here. None. There was training in relation to management and HR skills and employment law, but that was it. Uh, Faraz, that's about the, is that about the Sun? It is. is. Uh, it was the former Sun managing editor, Graham Dudman, that's the name that escaped you oh so briefly, uh, who was speaking in court, revealing there was no editorial training at the paper at all. Uh, he's standing trial along with five senior Sun colleagues accused of conspiracy to commit misconduct in the public office by paying for stories. They all deny the charges. Quote number three, all to play for. There is a work in progress cut from a project that was stored in a vat 
but still seems to be breathing, or at least emitting Matt. gas. Matt. Uh, this is the new Chris Morris documentary, uh, or new Chris Morris sketch to plug the new Chris Morris uh, uh, documentary. Um, was that Chris Morris himself? That was Chris Morris himself uh, talking about the premiere of his new comedy sketch, which is happening this Sunday on Six Music, uh, as you say, as part of a recent celebration of his work on the radio. Uh, it is quite funny, isn't it, that these people at the BBC are all queuing up to uh, give praise to Chris Morris now, where they repeatedly fired him over the years and told him that he wasn't suitable. I liked it. I think it was BBC Radio Oxford or somewhere. He filled the news booth with helium so that when the newsreader <laughs> went in to just do his bulletin, it all went very high. I like that. Is, is there a bit of Emperor's New Clothes about Chris Morris, do you think, for us, whilst we're dissing people on the Today guest well, editors? <laughs> I, I was interested in the fact that it's on Six Music, so we're doing comedy on Six Music now. So are we going to change the name of Six Music to Six? It's, it's, I thought it was a music Well, channel, I, th- so. I think uh, Marianne Hobbs, who presents uh, Six Music's Weekend Breakfast Show, has been involved in a documentary, so I think that's why, she, why the sketch is on. Chris Morris has uh, kept out of the public eye while still making interesting work over the years um, it would be nice to know who the next Chris Morris is and which of the BBC radio networks he would be able to be on well I'm hoping that my Christmas Day show on LBC will uh, contain an exclusive sketch by Hale and Pace that's uh, or maybe Trevor and Simon I don't know I haven't put in inquiries the Chuckle yet. are going cheap at the moment yeah, is that right yes uh, well uh, Faraz is putting a brave face on it but Matt you have won the quiz congratulations thank you the, the radio you. skewing quiz uh, <laughs> that is true that's a fair point uh, that is it for today my thanks to Faraz and to Matt uh, we'll be back in two weeks get the next podcast as soon as it's ready by subscribing at themediapodcast.com this week's episode is dedicated to Per Larsson a photographer from Scandi Viking Crime Land aka Sweden uh, and to Gary Rostron a provincial mildly media obsessed drug worker I've been Ollie Mann the producer is Matt Hill until next time bye bye